For whom did Jesus come? I came across a story really just a week or two ago about a young man named Clive uh, who was born in the late 1800s and he lived a pretty good life when he was a little kid. But about the age of 10, his mother passed away. And when that happened, Clive's father kind of withdrew. Withdrew emotionally, withdrew in interaction. And Clive struggled with this, being only 10 years old. In addition, right after that, his father shipped him off to boarding school. They lived in England. His father just didn't know how to handle his own personal grief and struggles uh, as well as take care of the kids that he had to take care of. And so with Clive struggling and grieving and then very shortly thereafter leaving home and going to a boarding school away from his father, away from his siblings, Clive struggled. This was compounded by the fact that the, the headmaster of the boarding school, come to find out later, struggled with mental illness and was extremely cruel to all of the students who went to that school. And Clive went there throughout his school days and came to the conclusion just a few years later that he did not want to believe in God because of what he experienced in this sinful, broken world. He said, God must not exist. And rejected God, rejected what actually he had been taught by his mother. Well, Clive continued to grow in this mindset. And when he graduated from that boarding school, he went off to Oxford, starting at Oxford. But during his first year at Oxford, World War I broke out. And Clive enlisted in the army. Going into that terrible scenario of war, especially World War I being especially brutal, with no belief in the Father, he saw all kinds of atrocious things, terrible, terrible things that went on that always go on during war. In World War I, some of those gas things and the barbed wire, it was bad. He saw his best friend die in front of his eyes. And he came back from the war and finished his education at Oxford, became a professor at Oxford, still dealing with with all the grief from his childhood, mourning the loss of not just his mother, but of his father as he was shipped off to boarding school, trying to deal with all the emotions of the war without God's guiding hand to rely on. Well, God didn't leave Clive alone. He sent him a friend at Oxford, another professor, a man named John. And Clive and John became fast friends, even though John was a devout believer in Jesus, an ardent Christian. And John and Clive would spend many evenings just talking about wide variety of things, history, but it always came back. John would always bring it back to Jesus. And there was one particular walk that the two of them were going on, having very high academic conversation. Uh, that Clive made a note of later and said, by the end of that conversation, when we got back to where we had started, I believed in God again. John and his absolute certainty of faith helped me believe in God. But he was still on a journey with Jesus. He hadn't accepted Jesus yet. 
And Clive, having believed in God, though, opened the door now to a whole new experience that he had not had since his mother was alive. And Clive writes, two years after that, he had reconnected with his brother, and he was riding in the car with his brother, having a conversation. And by the time the car got to where it was going, he said, I had believed in Jesus from the conversation with my brother. And Clive then went on to write extensively. His name is Clive Staples Lewis, C.S. Lewis. You see, he had rejected Jesus. And there was a period of time in his rejection that he wondered if Jesus would, would accept him back. He said that was some of the struggle between believing in God with his conversation with John, John, whose last name was Tolkien, uh, between his conversation with J.R.R. Tolkien and, and actually believing in Jesus, that he struggled with this idea that Jesus would want him, that Jesus would come for him, even though he had so ardently rejected Jesus. But through his conversations with John, through his conversations with his brother, he came to realize that Jesus came for everyone, even those who reject him. And so Clive C.S. Lewis went on to write not just the Narnia books, which are some of the uh, best-selling books in history, but things like Mere Christianity or, or The Great Divorce or The Problem with Miracles. Books, I guarantee you, if you've read them, you will have to read the pages over and over and over again to really understand the depth of this genius. Uh, but he explains much of people's struggle with Christianity, with believing in God, because he's speaking from a place of transparency. He's saying in those books, these are things that I struggled with. These are things that I had to deal with, and I had to have conversations with God about, and Jesus brought me to the point of absolute belief, and he walks through that in a fascinating way. Having come to the conclusion then that Jesus did in fact come for people, even him, an absolute rejecter of Jesus. And so as we look this morning in Luke chapter 2, which is where we're going to be, Luke chapter 2, if you have your Bible, you can turn there. You can use a Bible on the pew rack if you want. It's on page 857. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible, take that one home, that one in the pew rack. Merry Christmas. That's our Christmas gift to you. Everyone needs a Bible. Take that one home. Luke chapter 2, it'll also be on the screens uh, uh, if, if you'd rather just look there. Uh, but Luke chapter 2, we come to the point here, you know, Mary and Joseph have been told by the angel Gabriel that Jesus is coming and to, to prepare for that. But they're not the only ones in preparation. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. This, is, uh, this historical information is very fascinating. You know, Caesar sends out this, this issue, this decree, that everyone in the Roman Empire has to go and be registered, has to go and file for the census. And the way Rome did that, you know, it wasn't just to count all the people, it was to know how to better tax you and take your money. But Rome had this special concept, they did it with their taxes and they do it here with the census as well, is they didn't really, you know, care how you counted the people and they didn't care how you collected taxes as long as they got what they wanted. 
as long as they got the money they wanted from the taxes, as long as they got the, the count that they wanted from the census, you could collect the information and the money however you wanted. That's why tax collectors were so corrupt back then, is, is they knew Rome didn't care if they cheated the people and charged the people more money, as long as they sent the right amount to Rome and just kept the stuff that they charged over the top for themselves. Well, it's the same deal with this census. Rome said, you just count the people and get me the number. However you count the people, you do it however you want. Well, in this section of the world, in Judea, the way they did it is they required the people, because you know Israel was tribal, they had tribes, is they required the people to go back to their ancestral home, where it was, I mean, the tribes didn't necessarily have capital cities, but the most important city for that tribe, that's where you would go back and register for the census. And so each went back to his own town. That's what that means, is they would go back to their ancestral home to register uh, because they were from a certain tribe. And that's what we see here in verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. So because Joseph was descended from David, from the tribe of Judah, he had to go to Bethlehem. That was where he had to go. And so everyone else who was from the tribe of Judah, descended from David, had to go to Bethlehem. So Bethlehem was going to be packed because David lived a thousand years before this. So there were a lot of descendants of David by this time. And so all of those descendants of David, all those people from the tribe of Judah are descending on Bethlehem to go and register for this census. So imagine the queen all of a sudden bombarded by nearly a million people. Think there's going to be much elbow room here in the Queen? <laughs> I mean, just imagine how many we got now and compound that by another million. That's a lot of people. And it's that kind of idea. Bethlehem's a tiny city, it's a little bitty town. And, and it's, it's smaller than the Queen. And so all these people are headed to Bethlehem. Big old caravans, lots of people they're passing on the road. You know, if you came to our Christmas play a few weeks ago, you saw, we mentioned it in that, you notice it doesn't say how they traveled, Mary and Joseph. You know, the pictures are always Mary riding on a donkey, Joseph leading the donkey. It doesn't, there's no donkey in the passage. They could have walked the whole way from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. Uh, they could have ridden on a cart. They could have ridden a donkey, we don't, a camel, a horse, we don't know. But however they traveled, I guarantee you, compared to today, it was extremely uncomfortable, especially for Mary nine months pregnant, very uncomfortable. Can I get an amen? That was a female amen. That's what I wanted. That was good. And so they're on the way down there. Uh, verse 5. So Joseph went to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And we saw this a couple weeks ago, the betrothal situation. You know, they, they, Mary had been living with her parents. Joseph had been living with his parents. Joseph had been building a place for them to live, Mary and he. Uh, and then he received word that Mary was going to give birth to the Son of God. And so he went and said, okay, the betrothal period's over. It's time to bring her into the house. Um, and so he brought her into the house to live with him. And they're going together down to Bethlehem. Lots of scholars that I read are trying to figure out why Mary went with him. Because she would not have been required to go to register for the census. But let me ask you a question. If an angel shows up to you and says, you're going to give birth to the prophesied son of God, do you think you're going to go back in scripture and look up all those prophecies and look up 
you know, what scripture actually says. Okay, I'm having the son of God. I need to figure this out. What is actually going to be taking place during this raising the son of God situation? And they would have known about the prophecy about the son of God being born in Bethlehem. And all of a sudden they get in the mail. Caesar says, you have to go back to your ancestral home. Say, oh, there it is. So they pack up. They bring Mary along knowing that the son of God has to be born in Bethlehem to fulfill this prophecy. And so they make their way down to Bethlehem. Uh, Verse 6. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth. That's how you can tell this was written by a man. The time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth. And that's... (laughs) There's no description of the pain and the struggle. There's no description of, of how difficult it was. It's just very matter of fact. And she gave birth. That was it. That, that, that's all there was, according to Luke, who wrote this down. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And like we talked about, there's no place in the inn because there's so many people there. But what's fascinating is again, it doesn't say they were staying in a stable. You know, we assume that. There was a manger, so there had to be animals at some point. Uh, some people think they were staying in like the town square and there was a manger there. Some people think they were staying just in the, in the downstairs of another person's house because a lot of times that's where they kept the animals or a courtyard of a person's house. But you've got to imagine too, not only there was a manger, so there was probably animals, but because Bethlehem was so packed with people, this probably wasn't a very private moment. There were probably other people around in this moment because all the inns would have been full. All of the the Airbnbs, first century Airbnbs would have been full. Uh, The Verbos, all full. And everybody is just just packed in wherever they can find a spot. They're bringing their sleeping bags and they're making, making do with what they can find. And just like in this scenario, they make do with what they can find. They don't have a baby bed. Joseph being a carpenter, he didn't bring a crib. They don't have, you know, pack and play, none of that business. All they have is a manger that they find probably pulling out the straw that's got, you know, animal slobber on it, and they just lay the baby, wrapped in swaddling cloths, you know, swaddle him up, and lay him in the manger there, probably with other animals, probably with other people, but there was something else going on nearby, verse 8, and in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night, now this is important. Uh, there's a Jewish rule book called the Mishnah, and in it, there's a description that any animal found between Jerusalem and Bethlehem in this particular spot near Bethlehem, any animal found there would be designated for sacrifice. And so if it's sheep that are there designated for sacrifice, these are sheep most likely that were going to be used in the temple, most likely going to be taken and sacrificed in the temple. So these shepherds watching over these sheep, this is a very important job, watching over sacrificial lambs. And they're out there in the field and they're keeping watch over their flocks or their flock at nighttime. And it's important that it's shepherds. You know, Jesus later on when he does his teaching, as well as as God when he speaks uh, of shepherds, even in the Old Testament, shepherds are most often spoken of in a very positive light. Shepherds guide, shepherds protect, shepherds help. Um, you know, in Psalm 23, shepherds, uh, the, the good shepherd leads the sheep to the water, to the, to the green pastures. But shepherds had, had taken on a very negative connotation 
uh, by this particular point in time to the point that they were considered unclean. They could not come into the temple and worship until they had stopped being a shepherd and gone and done some sort of cleaning ritual for a period of time. Only then would they be allowed to come in and worship because shepherds were dirty. They were unclean. Uh, their reputation actually was, was being very dishonest. They didn't have the distinction between what was yours and what was mine. And if I, their, what their mindset was, if it's there and I take it, it's mine, whether it's yours or not. That's the way people thought of shepherds. They were outcasts. They, they were thought of as less than by the vast majority in the culture. And so you got these shepherds watching sheep at night. Look at what happens next, verse 9. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And I love this passage, this verse too. I mean, an angel of the Lord appeared to them. Notice it doesn't say he appeared in the sky. He appeared to them. The implication is he just appears in the middle of their little grouping. Like they're there, they're, they're huddled up, the shepherds are watching their sheep night, maybe they're gathered for warmth, and this, this angel appears. It's as though the angel appears just right there with them. Boom, guy standing there, and it's obviously an angel. And they're filled with great fear, but they're filled with great fear, not just because of the angel. Notice that next phrase. The glory of the Lord shone around them. Around them. Not just a bright light shining from the angel. This is a light emanating from the air and the presence of God coming from the air, penetrating every part of them. Later on, when Jesus goes to the Mount of Transfiguration, he get, he's got Peter, James, and John up there, and it says he was transfigured, and, and the glory of the Lord shone, on them, or shone around them in the cloud, and, and they could experience God speaking from the cloud. So imagine being in extremely thick fog, and the voice coming from the fog, so everywhere. The voice is coming. It's that idea with the glory of the Lord and the shepherds out there in the field. They can experience the presence of God and his glory compounding all around them like a thickness. And so, yes, the guy appearing in front of them would have been scary out there in the field. They didn't see him coming. Just boom, there he is. But it's the glory of the Lord that would have overwhelmed them. And they're filled with fear, not just a little bit of fear, but a great fear, like to the point of death fear for their lives. In this moment. Verse uh, 10. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. So he kicks it off like angels usually do because their appearance is very scary. I mean, just boom, he's there, but also the glory of the Lord. And he says, Don't be afraid, stop being scared, because I'm here for a good reason. Have you ever been called to like, when you were a kid, you know, your parents called you in or somebody said, hey, we need to talk or you called to the principal's office and you had that scared feeling kind of a deal, you know what I mean? And the angel is there and he says, don't worry, this, you're not in trouble. This is a good thing. I'm here to bring good news of great joy for all the people. I'm here for a great reason. Verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And so now the angel tells him, the thing that has been prophesied for millennia, for thousands of years, has now come. The Savior, the Messiah, the Son of God is born. And so he, he's delivering this. And even though these guys, these shepherds, with a reputation for being dishonest, these shepherds who were considered unclean, these shepherds who were thought of as less than in the culture, they still would have known this story. The Messiah is coming. 
at some point. They still would have known something is happening. They still would have known that, that, that uh, looking forward to, to the Messiah coming, especially if they're out there keeping watch over sacrificial lambs, this would have been something that would have been even just in the back of their minds. And now this angel shows up with the glory of the Lord, and he tells them the time is now. Verse 12. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. So he says, and this is how you're going to find him. This is what the angel's saying. You're going to find him like this. He's right over there in the city. Right over there. He's going to be wrapped up, he's going to be swaddled up, and he's lying in a manger. Again, Bethlehem is small, smaller than the queen. All they got to do is walk around town, find him the closest baby. I guarantee you there's probably only one baby, brand new, born that night in a manger. They said, just find a baby with these stipulations, and that is the one who is the son of God. They said, okay, and they're still trying to process this, trying to process the glory of God, trying to process the angel appearing, now trying to process the message, but they're not done seeing stuff. Verse 13. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now Ray Wartinger asked me this morning, how many is a multitude? A lot. We don't know. What I told them was, I kind of feel like sometimes they use the word, they, they say multitude when it's too many to count. Like they don't have time to count everybody. So, as far as I can see, it looks like a multitude to me. Uh, you know, uh, we're, th- we're talking a bunch. I mean, hundreds, of, possibly thousands. You know, we were talking this morning. And, I mean, maybe these angels had been lining up for years for this assignment. And, and as many angels as they could possibly get burst on this scene. And they're chanting this, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. And look at that next verse, though. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Now, I want to point out just the first part of that verse. It says, when the angels went away. Notice it doesn't say they immediately left as soon as they had said, glory to God in the highest. It just says, when they left, when they went away. What if they hung out with them for a little while? What if they talked for a little bit? What if they said more than what was just said there? We don't know. They could have been there for a little bit, or they could have immediately disappeared. It just doesn't say. All it says is, the angels came, appeared, this massive undertaking, this huge chant of everybody saying this. And then at some point, the angels went away, and the shepherds finally had the presence of mind to think, we need to go to Bethlehem and see this. This was obviously from God. We've got to go over there to Bethlehem and see this thing the Lord has made known to us. They don't, at, this, at this point, they don't have a second thought about, well, what are the people going to think when all of us unclean shepherds are running through the streets? Or if we're running through the streets, we can't just leave our sheep. Maybe we've got to bring our sheep with us. What are people going to say we're walking through town? They don't want to be near us. They don't want to sell stuff to us. And, and we're running through the city. That never crosses their mind at this point. All they're thinking is the Lord showed us this. We need to go figure this out. So they packed up and they went straight to Bethlehem, you know, stones throw away. And they're running through the streets trying to find Mary and Joseph and this baby. Uh, Verse 16, and they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying 
that had been told them concerning this child. Now imagine that scene also, right? If Mary and Joseph got the animals, if Mary and Joseph are sitting there, and it's not just them, but it's other people who are gathered around trying to find a comfortable spot to stay, these shepherds wouldn't just be making known these, what the angels said to them just to Mary and Joseph. It would be to everyone who's there assembled, hearing what has just happened. And the shepherds are there saying, this angel came and he said, this is the son of God. This is the Messiah that's been prophesied. We've been waiting for for thousands of years. And here he is. As they're there in, in Bethlehem, worshiping these unclean shepherds, worshiping, outcasts, receiving the first ones to receive the, the, the uh, baby announcement, the birth announcement. These, angel, uh, the, these shepherds, last ones on everybody's list, were the first ones on God's. And they made known to them what had been told concerning the child. Verse 18. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. You know, everything we know about Jesus this announcement coming to the shepherds, the, the outcasts, the guys with poor reputations. They found joy and, and hope with Jesus coming into their lives. But it wasn't just them. I mean, Mary and Joseph would have been outcasts. You know, here's a baby born into their family of whom the baby is not the husbands. They would have been cultural, societal outcasts. They were also poor, very poor. Actually, you might say they were po. They were so poor they couldn't afford the OR. They were po. Because shortly after this, they go to the temple to make a sacrifice uh, uh, for their newborn son. And, and the sacrifice, what they bring are two turtle doves, which according to the Old Testament law was what people in poverty would bring to sacrifice. They couldn't afford a lamb, not even a small one. They would just bring two turtle doves which cost a couple pennies back then, to sacrifice. So we know Joseph and Mary were, were not very well off at all. They, they struggled with their finances, which is also very important. Like when the, the Magi show up and bring those gifts, it's believed among every scholar that I read that Mary and Joseph used the gold, frankincense, and myrrh to fund their, their escape to Egypt, their time in Egypt, and their return trip. Uh, because that would have been stuff they would not have had. They wouldn't have money to run away. But God showed up just in time and provided the financial backing for their trip. And so here we've got Mary and Joseph, outcasts, poor, struggling, who find strength and hope and peace with Jesus in their home. Shepherds, outcasts, find joy and hope because Jesus came for everyone. Jesus is not seemingly limited to those who appear perfect, to those who have the biggest Bibles, to those who use the, 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 you know, the $10 words in their prayers, to those that from our perspective look like they've got it all together. Jesus didn't just come for them. Jesus didn't, just, Jesus didn't come just for people who, who to our perspective seems like, you know, once I get to their level, then I can get close to Jesus. Once I get my life right and I give this thing up and I stop doing this habit and I get better with this, then I can get close to Jesus like so-and-so over there. 
Jesus, in, in the example in how he came to Mary and Joseph, in how he came to the shepherds, Jesus came for everyone. Anybody and everybody. Irregardless of what anybody's into. Irregardless of how anybody dresses. Irregardless of how many presents were under anybody's tree this morning. Irregardless of, of if, you know, if you're wearing a hat in church. Irregardless of how you dress in church. Irregardless of the kind of shoes you're wearing. Jesus came for everybody. The brother of Jesus actually says in Acts chapter 15, they're having this huge church business meeting. And just like every, not every, I mean, uh, I've been to some, some very good church business meetings, uh, and some not so hot, but they were having one that was very intense, lots of arguing in their business meeting. And then James, who's the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, brother of Jesus, he stands up and he, he, he addresses all these people in the room. And he says, this is what we need to do. We need to not make it difficult for any unbeliever coming to Jesus. And that shut everybody up. And that's what it's all about. Don't make it difficult for anybody coming to Jesus because Jesus came for everybody. If there's a cover charge to get close to Jesus, then we all fail because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But he came and died for all of us, for all of us. No matter how dirty your life is or your mind is, guarantee you mine is too. But he died for me just like he died for you. If it wasn't for Jesus, I guarantee you I wouldn't be here. I'd probably be dead if it wasn't for Jesus. But Jesus steps in and Jesus protects and Jesus brings along. and He provides what Mary and Joseph found. He provides what the shepherds found. Peace and strength and comfort and joy. Everyone needs Jesus. And Jesus came for everyone. Everyone. Even the person you find so frustrating, even the person who continues to mess up, even the person who, who struggles and has great difficulty. We had somebody walk in our church doors one Sunday, drunk out of her mind. And one of our church members, they're not a member anymore, but back they, this, this church member had a, had a problem with that. And I told this church member, I said, if there's any place that person needs to be, it's right here. And we're never going to turn somebody away, ever. No matter how they come in, they need Jesus. Because Jesus didn't turn me away. So we're not turning anybody else away, ever. They need Jesus, they're coming. You know, during the pandemic, we had somebody who was very ardent um, and yelled at me and said, we need to... Uh, uh, make it a requirement that you come and wear a mask. And this person was so adamant that they said, we should turn people away at the doors if they will not come in the doors with a mask. And the Lord gave me strength in the moment. <laughs> I don't always display it. But it was my conviction that we should never turn anybody away, ever, ever. That I understand COVID is, is difficult and it was deadly to many and uh, it still is to some. But at the same time, we're not going to kick anybody to the curb who's coming to find out about Jesus, ever. I remember Katie's got this friend uh, lives down in Houston. It was MS. And she was told when the pandemic broke out, you are at high risk because of your MS. 
And you absolutely need to stay away from all, all large gatherings. You need to stay away from church. And I, love, I think about this often when I, come, when I walk into church. Even just during the week, I think about her answer to this. And she saw a change in her family just not being in church, just not being around other believers. And her church at that time wasn't meeting. And she said, I don't care about the health risk. The spiritual damage to my family is worth, or is, is far worse than the health risk to me. And so they found another church and they went to until their church opened back up again. And everybody's got their own convictions. I'm not condemning anybody or any of that jazz. Um, but we have to come to the conclusion that our own spiritual health, the spiritual health of other people, sometimes is more important than some of the things we consider to be important. That's why Jesus showed up to Mary and Joseph, outcasts. That's why Jesus showed up to shepherds, outcasts. Because their, their spiritual condition was worth so much to Jesus, he threw out all cultural conventions. It says, culture says, don't go to the shepherds. They're dirty and gross, and they, they sin, and they do bad stuff. And Jesus said, yeah, but they need salvation. So I'm going to them. Everybody, everybody needs Jesus. And Jesus came for everybody. And so what that means is for us, if we are followers of Jesus, we need to see everybody as somebody Jesus came for. See, everybody is someone Jesus died for. See, everybody is someone who needs Jesus. And however they're responding, however they're reacting, it's a personal spiritual struggle, and they need Jesus to fix it. And we got to see people that way, people who need Jesus. Because we're only here for a certain amount of time, and you experience that as you get older, that time passes so fast. A friend of mine in her mid-40s just passed away a couple weeks ago from cancer. Small kids, husband, family. Time passes so fast, so fast. And everybody needs Jesus. And so the question today, first of all, is do you need Jesus today? Wherever you find yourself. Maybe you feel you're too far gone or maybe you've been told you're too far gone. Maybe you've been told you've done something that, that is too far out there and Jesus can't fix it. Straight up, that's a lie. You're still here. There's nothing you can do here that Jesus can't forgive. He can forgive anybody and everybody. If he can forgive me, I promise you he can forgive you. Do you need Jesus today to believe that he's the son of God? That he came and he died so all your sins would be forgiven. And he rose from the dead so you can live after you die. Do you need to believe that today? What better day to believe in Jesus than Christmas Day? If you need to believe in Jesus, in just a second, I'm going to pray. And that's your moment. Say, okay, it's my time. Just like we talked about with C.S. Lewis. It's my time. I'm going to believe in Jesus today. I walked in not believing, but I'm walking out believing. And if you need to believe in Jesus, you need to do that. Maybe today you do believe in Jesus. But you're struggling to understand certain things. Just because you believe in Jesus doesn't mean you don't still need him. You do. I need him every moment of every day or I'm not going to make it. So whether you need Jesus today or the first time or the thousandth time, 
Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus today because he came to you on Christmas so many years ago.